You're listening to the news on RTHK. for the last two to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Richard Harris, standing in for Renita Malhotra-Hora, who's having a well-deserved Christmas break. And it's a busy news day. The Fed changes its language on interest rates, but hedges its bets. Russia acts firmly to halt the ruble decline. And the screens show a sea of green as the US markets rally sharply in response. Now, it's more about government intervention today than it is about economics, as we bring you a rare array of financial talent to pick through the issues, starting with my old friend and former colleague Hans Gotti of Bank International at Luxembourg, who will be giving our market commentary today. We'll be forecasting the markets in 2015 with the help of Adrian Zucher of UBS. And we're tying it all up with John Phillips of Anytime Fitness to give us less of a well-rounded show. And with us today is our regular guest host on a Thursday, Peter Lewis, Director of Peter Lewis Consulting. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Richard. Nice to be here. That's all right. I believe you have a Fed fact for us this morning. Yes, as it's Fed Day, one of our um, regular Fed days every year. Um, The Fed, as you know, is the issuer of um, all those banknotes, all that currency that we see around in the US. Last year, it issued $470 billion of banknotes to replace all those old dollar bills, which have quite a short um, shelf life. The second largest issuer of banknotes in, uh, in the US is Hasbro, the maker of Monopoly and they issue 30 billion of Monopoly money every year. Well, some may say that Hasbro are more valuable than the other. I think they are. They're probably more valuable than some of those US dollar bills these days, given how many the Fed prints of them. Well, let's see if we can prove them wrong. We've been wondering how the US Federal Reserve would word the statement from their December meeting, and the results please the markets. They decided to keep the words considerable time, referring to when they might increase interest rates. They also added the word patient in judging when to put rates up. Chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Janet Yellen, explains the language. That the committee judges that it can be patient in beginning to normalize the stance of monetary policy. This new language does not represent a change in our policy intentions and is fully consistent with our previous guidance, which stated that it likely will be appropriate to maintain the current target range for the federal funds rate for a considerable time after the end of our asset purchase program. But with that program having ended in October and the economy continuing to make progress toward our objectives, the committee judged that some modification to our guidance is appropriate at this time. The U.S. has seen its best run of economic news for six or seven years, and two of the seven Fed governors wanted to put up rates now. The Fed is now forecasting lower inflation and unemployment, and economic growth at around 3% for 2015. Back to the Yellen press conference, where she sounds pretty happy about the economy. The committee continues to see sufficient underlying strength in the economy to support ongoing improvement in the labour market. Real GDP looks to have increased robustly in the third quarter, reflecting solid consumption and investment spending. Smoothing through the quarterly ups and downs earlier this year, real GDP expanded around 2.5% over 
over the four quarters ending in the third quarter. And the available indicators suggest that economic growth is running at roughly that pace in the current quarter. So it looks like growth continues. Nevertheless, the Fed is still hedging its bets, not wanting to upset the markets at such a fragile time. Yellen also said interest rates would be unlikely to rise for the next couple of meetings planned for January and March. Peter, you're our resident Fed expert. Don't you think Janet Yellen sounds much more positive than previously? Well, she's done a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the Fed doesn't want to box itself in in terms of when are interest rates going to uh, to go up. So this is why there's been so much focus on this language considerable time, which in typical Fed way, they've sort of half removed from the statement because they said now they're going to be patient. And then they referred to considerable time by saying that it means the same thing anyway. But I suspect that in the next statement, we'll see no more mention of considerable time. It'll be we are patient in terms of when um, interest rates are going to um, are going to rise. Yes, they're being kind with us, I think. Um, in, in Russia, the ruble left 12% after another day of high volatility and is currently trading at 62 to the US dollar, still down 50% this year. It was helped by Brent crude stabilising at $60 a barrel. Russians have been queuing at bank branches as citizens have tried to convert their rubles into US dollars and euros. Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev tried to calm nerves. What we are seeing today is mainly emotional games. It's in our interests to bring order to the markets. No one gains from instability. But at the same time, there's no need for tough regulations, as used to happen in the past. President Putin speaks today at his annual press conference, which will be closely followed by the markets as a guide to his leadership. Markets have been pleased at moves overnight. In Wall Street, the S&P 500 jumped 2.1% to 2014, the biggest jump this year. Volatility was down. The US long bond was at 2.09%, close to historical lows, reflecting low inflation expectations. European markets were closed, but were pretty well frozen in anticipation. But in Asia yesterday, Shanghai stood out with the composite index up 1.3% to 3,061, a four-year high. Hong Kong ended the day 0.4 down 22,585. The dollar after the Fed meeting uh, recovered to its recent highs in most currencies, with the euro now at $1.24, the Japanese yen at 118.73, and the pound sterling at $1.56, or otherwise 12.08 to the Hong Kong dollar. I think what we'll do now is we'll bring in Hans Gerti, who's our first guest and is going to be talking about the markets. Hans is Head of Investment Asia of Bank International Luxembourg and he's on the line from Singapore. Good morning, Hans. Yeah, good morning. Hans, it sounds like a Chief Investment Officer's dream, this. We've got volatility in currencies, equity markets, uncertainty, central banks in recovery mode. Um, what have you got to talk about? Well, as a portfolio manager, you would probably like it a bit more quiet. But um, what we're seeing here is a two-speed global economy. You have on one hand the United States economy doing very well. And on the other hand, you have the rest of the world either in recession or near deflation or in, in other turmoil. So what you have is a strong dollar capital inflows into the U.S., and uh, emerging markets basically reeling from uh, from. Lower oil prices, some of them, some benefit, uh, losers and winners. It's, it's an interesting world right now, but we would like it a little bit more quiet than it is right now. The big concern I think that people have had has been the contagion effect, that so much was happening in Russia and it seems so dire that maybe that's going to affect other parts of the world. It certainly seems to have happened 
with the emerging markets, but not all emerging markets are the same, are they? Uh, no, they're not. Uh, for instance, India is an importer of crude oil and is a big beneficiary of lower prices. Russia, Venezuela, and the others, of course, uh, the oil producers are suffering. Uh, a contagion effect uh, is mainly possible through the financial markets. I mean, you, for instance, you have uh, uh, junk bonds in the United States issued by energy companies, and of course, they have they have gone down. Uh, and these are being held in, uh, you know, ETFs for funds, uh, which tend to be in 401ks and so on. So I think the contagion via the financial markets is probably much more uh, dangerous. But overall, lower oil prices help the real economy. And I'm convinced that the U.S. benefits more from lower oil prices than from higher oil prices. So that's one of the things that we're seeing around the world, and, and Janet Yellen did uh, refer to this in her statement, is a lack of inflation, and in some cases, deflation. We're, we're seeing inflation expectations from the marketplace collapse to all-time lows. What does this do for sort of your managing the risk in your portfolio, and, what, and what's the effect of that if this continues on the, uh, on the markets? Well, what we're looking at is the response by central banks to uh, deflationary uh, pressures, or let's say disinflation. Uh, central banks are the main driver of asset prices, and you have accommodative central banks, uh, the Fed being the exception, although they have not tightened policy, they've just stopped expanding the balance sheet. But any other central bank, be it the Bank of Japan, uh, the PBOC, uh, the ECB, which probably has, has a lot more work to do, will somehow underpin uh, asset prices. So central banks are still the determining factor, and as long as inflation is low or there's a danger of deflation, uh, we can rest assured that central banks will remain extremely easy in their policies. But what what's this whole thing about uh, deflation, Hans? I mean, uh, a little bit of deflation surely can't be that bad. After all, uh, we hear all the time that savers get hurt in times of high inflation. Uh, shouldn't it be good for just the other side of the economy to have a bit of deflation? Well, I would agree. Um, I think central bankers of the world today, uh, they come from the Keynesian school of economics, and uh, they seem to like inflation every central bank in the world wants to create inflation, but you can make a counter-argument and say, what's wrong with deflation when consumers have more money to spend, where cash actually increases in value rather than decreases as even in a very high inflation. You could make that argument. And I would think that uh, over time, we will probably see uh, people realizing that. I think what, what's, what's probably going to happen right now is that with lower oil prices, you have more deflation. And uh, central banks should actually be anti-cyclical because lower oil prices in many parts of the world will lead to higher economic growth. And actually, the logical thing to do would be to tighten policy, but that's not what's going to happen. I think they're going to reflate or they're going to react to the headline numbers, which, of course, will be much worse in terms of deflation, also due to the lower oil price. So we're basically going to see central banks continue to add the sugar pills to the economy by injecting more liquidity? Uh, we expect that, yes, uh, definitely over the next few months. Again, the exception being the Fed, but even the Fed says our policy will be data dependent and uh, they have been known to uh, shift the goalposts. Uh, it used to be the labor market. Now it's all of a sudden the focus on inflation. So it's not, I'm not convinced that we're going to see 
a tightening cycle. The Fed will be the first, but the rest of the world, uh, we don't see any tightening anytime soon. So, Hans, where are your, where do you think you're going to be putting your money or your clients' money uh, over the next, say, let's say six months? Well, on a in a balanced portfolio, we have an overweight in equities, and uh, we are overweight in the United States. We are overweight in Japan. We're underweight in emerging markets. At the moment, we're neutral in Europe, but that could change also. We have a few stop losses in place. Let's say if markets uh, fall below certain technical support levels, we would reduce positions. We have not done so yet, but um, we prefer clearly prefer equities over bonds. Uh, because we believe the bond market, especially uh, the junk bond market in energy-related, will probably have further downside. Maybe that doesn't apply to treasury bonds, but overall bonds seem to be less attractive than equities at this point. Okay, thanks for that, Hans. I don't know if you have a moment just to stay on the line, and uh, maybe you could come in with our other guest. Uh, In the meantime, it's 8.16. To enhance the quality, safety and price transparency of private healthcare services, the government is seeking your views in a public consultation on the recommendations to improve the regulation of private healthcare facilities. Please send your views by March 16, 2015. For details, please visit the Food and Health Bureau website at www.fhb.gov.hk. With the jingle of money, I'm delighted to introduce Adrian Zerker, who's head of Asia Asset Allocation for UBS and in our Queensway studio today. Uh, good morning, Adrian. Good morning. Adrian, you've come in to look, uh, give us a view of your perspective of the markets in 2015. And actually, as head of asset allocation, your job is to look at the big picture, balancing things like cash, bonds, equities, commodities. What's your view for 2015? Well, we think that um, the macroeconomic, uh, macroeconomic environment stays positive for the equity market in particular, so risky assets and the credit side. If you look at uh, the world, we actually think we are in a diverging world. So growth is diverging, as we already have heard. The U.S. is doing incredibly well. Japan and Europe is uh, struggling in terms of growth. And I think one of the key differences is that we see a diverging trend in monetary policy. We actually do expect that the Fed will start to uh, hike rates in 2015, uh, while in ECB or the BOJ is actually still printing money. So the, the money printing machine is on full throttle. And putting all together, we would say that um, the equity market is still our most preferred uh, area or asset class with a particular focus on the U.S. equity market. We are overweight U.S. equity market. We are underweight the U.K., which is actually suffering from a lower commodity price. Uh, on the fixed income space, we think that yields will move higher, in particular also in the U.S., driven by higher monetary policy or basically a tighter monetary policy. Uh, but on the credit side, we still see room for, for some improvements, um, in particular if, if earnings are coming through, uh, the high-yielding space will actually do, do better. And we also expect that apart from the energy-related high-yield bonds, um, that there we actually see a spread uh, tightening. So that could 
increase the performance. So, so Adrian, if, if we look forward to next year, the Janet Yellen indicated that for the next two meetings, no rate rise, but it does rather implicate that maybe we'll start seeing rate rises in April. What does that mean for the bond markets? We're seeing bonds around the world, government bonds at record low yields. Can, can these markets cope with, um, you know, with, uh, with, with increases in rates without causing some major disruption in bond prices? Well, we think that the Fed will be very gradual and gentle in increasing and adjusting the, their monetary policy. So bonds still should be supported. But yes, I mean, if you look at the 10-year treasury, we actually expect that the yields are moving slowly up. We have a six-month target of 2.6%. Um, so therefore, we are actually focusing rather on, on the equity side. And another interesting asset class in an environment with very low e- yields but an actually increasing interest rates environment is, is the hedge fund space, which has historically low volatility, but actually decent returns over time. And as, as volatility increases, we, we, we tend to get that when we have divergent monetary uh, sort of policies between the global central banks. W- would you expect more volatility in, say, equity markets going forward next year as a result of that? Absolutely. I think one of the key implications of these diverging trends is higher volatility and probably also more outsized market moves. So that's increasing tactical opportunities. But on the other hand, um, it's also increasing risk. So what we really recommend is to spread the portfolio among different asset classes and in particular also across different, different regions. So diversification is best. Um, you talk about volatility and there being quite a lot of volatility, but you also sound quite bullish in terms of the equity markets. How are you matching those two together? Well, as I said, I mean, at the end, you want to diversify your risk, you want to spread your risk, but the global economy is in a recovery mode. I mean, we should not forget that the Fed will tighten because of the better macroeconomic environment. We have seen that the labor market has gained momentum. Consumer confidence has got a boost because of the lower oil price. And we also can see that investments are are coming through. So we're looking at diversification. Are you favoring US over Europe or do you think maybe Europe will come through next year? And then what about emerging markets? In our global uh, portfolio and balanced portfolio, we overweight the US equity market. We are neutral on Europe. We think it has probably one of the biggest potential um, going forward. But we have to see more confirmation that the ECB will start to increase their QE efforts. But we are underweight the emerging market space. And in particular, the Latin American area and the EMEA area is suffering from the lower oil price and from, from a strengthening US. What about the Asian markets, though, the little Asian markets? Asia has two trends, basically. We see, on one hand, strengthening US dollar will increase cost of capital for a lot of the countries and producers and corporates. On the other hand, we are a net oil importer, so the steep decline in oil price is definitely helping Asia. And we are neutral on on the Asian region with a clear preference for Taiwan on on a country level because it's really the best leverage play to the U.S. economy and the U.S. consumer. We see Apple supply chain, and we have an oil weight in India, which is the prime beneficiary of a lower oil price. Inflation is coming down. Growth is starting to pick up. Hans, if you're still there, are your country views similar for Asia? Well, pretty similar. I would think, uh, again, the beneficiaries of a lower oil price, the oil importers uh, would be in focus. But um, we in Asia, of course, Japan, Japan is part of Asia too, although people like to always talk about the Asia ex-Japan. 
we are bullish on Japan, uh, not because the economy is doing particularly well, but what you have there is uh, a, a Bank of Japan, which is extremely accommodative. Um, you have uh, improvements at the, mac- the micro level in terms of uh, shareholder value. For instance, we have seen a huge increase in dividend payments and share buybacks. And we think that will continue because corporate balance sheets are uh, flush with cash. And uh, last but not least, you have pension reform, where you have a massive asset allocation away from bonds into the equity space. And the top of that, uh, Japanese equities are cheap uh, by, inter- or, let's say, relative to uh, international equity markets. So for 2015, we still think the Japanese uh, equity market has quite a lot of upside potential on, a, on an absolute and a relative basis. Adrian, you're in a lift with your best client in between floors going on between, between floor three and floor four. What's the main thing you want to tell him about next year? Well, the, the, the main theme is really the diverging trends that we see, but stay invested. Uh, I think the economic environment really still is a, has a preference for the equity markets, for credits, for the risky assets. At the same time, we have to expect higher rates and that could basically impact the fixed income area, particularly high-grade bonds that will do less well in this environment. Great. Well, thank you very much to both of you. Thank you to Hans and thank you to Adrian. Uh, Hans is Head of Investment uh, at uh, Bank International at Luxembourg and Adrian is Head of Asset Allocation at UBS in Hong Kong. So that's our Swiss feature for today. And just in time for Christmas, we're pleased to welcome John Phillips, who's General Manager of Hong Kong Operations at Anytime Fitness. Uh, John, I feel it's very appropriate to talk about fitness as we're about to launch ourselves into a time of feasting. Uh, and I guess that's why you're in Hong Kong at the moment. Yeah, good morning, Richard. Uh, we are in Hong Kong. We've um, opened our first club. And uh, what you touched on there with Christmas is a season of overeating and indulging and having a great time. That's all really good. Um, Tied in with that, unfortunately, I read in the Hong Kong Sunday paper about two months ago that um, the incidence of diabetes and uh, overweight, obesity-type things are happening in Hong Kong, um, which is a sad thing because we don't want to see that. I guess part of the reason we're here is that generally through the US now, there's about 15 to 17% of people have memberships of a fitness club, and Pan-Asia, we know it's about 3%. So we think we've arrived in uh, Hong Kong at a time where more and more people will be looking to um, do something for their fitness and their well-being and they're feeling good about themselves. So, yeah, you, it, it's good to eat like that at Christmas time because it's great fun and we can help you work it off after. But this is, um, you know, this is a, a market where there's a lot of um, health clubs opening up in Hong Kong or have opened up in Hong Kong. Is, is there something that you're going to do that's maybe different from what, from what we're seeing already in the, in, the, in the marketplace here? Look, I think we have got a few really key differences well, one big one is that we tend to be where the people are. We tend to be out in the community, so we're not just you know in Queens Road Central and the the really busy you know, CBD areas. We're out in the suburbs where the people are. The other thing with Anytime Fitness, the name is is there because we give our members the key to the door, and they can come in twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. So. Our first club in uh, in Hong Kong is open in Kowloon City, and if our members want to come in at four o'clock in the afternoon after Christmas lunch, they've got the key and they can come in whenever they want. The other really great thing about our system is there's 2,700 Anytime Fitnesses worldwide, 
and the key that our members get in Kowloon City opened the door for Singapore, for uh, Philippines, for Australia, for any, any one of our 2,700 clubs, that key works. So for people who travel, it's a fantastic system. Now, they do say with fitness clubs that this is a great time of year because people make all these New Year's resolutions, they pay for a year's membership, and then they never use it. Is that, uh, is, is that a rumour or is, does Look, that I'm, actually I'm, happen? I'm sure there's some truth in that, and, and to be honest, it's the last thing we want. So what, what we, do, we do there to ensure that doesn't happen with our members is the first thing is our members pay by the month. So they're not paying for 12 months up front. Um, there is a 12-month contract they can sign or they can do a month-to-month contract if they want to. The other thing, uh, Richard, what we do is we give all of the people who join our gym, we give them three sessions included for no extra cost with a personal trainer. So what we found over the years is the thing that people want when they join a gym is they want to have some certainty that if I do this program, if I follow my program, I will get to my goals. And the other key thing they want is they want confidence that I know how to do my workout. When I come into the gym, I actually know what to do. I know how to use all the equipment. So we like to give a lot of TLC and a lot of hand-holding in the beginning. That's great. Well, thanks very much, uh, John. We have to move on. That's John Phillips, General Manager of Hong Kong Operations at Anytime Fitness. So um, if you're feeling fat over Christmas, um, you know where to go. Thanks, Richard. Pleasure. Um, Peter, coming to the end of the show, what's your feeling about the markets? It's been an interesting week. It's been an interesting month. But um, what about the rest of the month looking well, into the new I, year? I'm not as positive about equities as, um, as, as Adrian and Hans were. And, and, and the reason for that is um, we'll come back to this inflation-deflation debate again. And, and the central banks are, are losing the battle. I mean, if you remember, they've all got targets of now 2% inflation. They're all desperate to try and um, get inflation up. But it's actually deflation that, that that's winning around the world. And the reason why this is a big problem, I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, deflation can be good. And there have certainly been periods in history where falling prices is good. But the reason, the big, big difference now is debt. The world has $100 trillion of debt in every major country over the world. Um, that debt has been going up. I mean, in Japan at the moment, it's over 400% of GDP. In the Eurozone, it's 260%. China's high too. China is uh, 217%. So... Debt is disastrous. Uh, deflation is disastrous for debt because it makes the value of that debt go up much higher, much more difficult to pay. And in those types of environments, deflation starts to lead to credit crisis. And that's what we're seeing in some places right now um, around the world. So the authorities want inflation so they can inflate away all our debt and... Exactly. Because we can live only, high on the hog again. There's only two ways. You either grow GDP or you inflate it away. Great. Well, thank you very much. That's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, our usual guest host uh, on a Thursday. Uh, just to let you know, the markets that are currently open, we have the Australian market, which is up 1.83% to 5,234. The Nikkei is up 2.4% at 17,217. And the Cosby in Seoul is up just half a percent at 1,900. 910, so plenty of green across the board. I'd just like to thank you again for joining me on my first Money for Nothing. Uh, tomorrow we've got Michael Kurtz of Nomura to give us his view of 2015, the year ahead. And just the weather for today, the forecast is mainly fine and very dry. Uh, it'll be cold in the morning. The maximum temperature will be around 16 degrees during the day. Cloudy with one or two rain patches tonight. Moderate to fresh east to northeasterly winds. The temperature at the Hong Kong Observatory is 12 degrees C and the relative humidity a rather low 41%. And now the news read by Todd Harding. 
The United States and Cuba are to end more than 50 years of hostility and have opened formal discussions on restoring diplomatic relations. Announcing the historic move, President Obama said the US policy of isolating Cuba had clearly failed. In an unprecedented phone conversation between Mr Obama and President Raul Castro, the two leaders agreed a number of measures, including a mutual release of imprisoned spies and easing travel restrictions. The BBC's Barbara Plett-Usher reports from Washington. President Obama invested the announcement with a sense of sweeping historical significance. In a statement from the White House, he declared the end of what he called a rigid policy of isolation based on Cold War hostilities. This means reviving diplomatic ties and taking steps to ease an embargo that has contributed to Cuba's dire economic state. The announcement was made after a mutual release of prisoners and an unprecedented 45-minute telephone conversation with Raul Castro. Mr. Obama has the authority to normalize relations with Cuba, but only Congress can lift the embargo. And there, the president still faces significant opposition from some lawmakers. Sony has cancelled the planned release next week in the United States of a comedy film about a fictional plot to kill the North Korean leader, after a growing number of cinemas refused to screen it. Hackers had warned the public against going to see the movie. US investigators are reported to have concluded that North Korea was behind a cyber attack on Sony, which has led to the publication of huge amounts of internal company data. The BBC's Alistair Leithead reports